0: Well, good morning, Oakridge family. Were you surprised, as well as me, about this big blanket of snow that came upon us last night? I, for one, am a summer person, so I endure the winter. But then, you know, uh, winter is is what you make of it. And so, uh, just wanted to show you a picture of uh, somebody's handiwork. Is it coming up on the screen? There it is. That, that That's not my artistry, but uh, I thought it was great. Today we want to talk about family matters. And I want to tell you this, there are matters that pertain to family, but families matter to God. And that's one of the big takeaways for for us this morning. As some of you know, Kathy and I have been away for six weeks or so visiting family in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, there was no snow, but there was frost. And we enjoyed our time there with our son Chris and his wife and and seven children who lived there. It was a joy to be able to see them and have fellowship with them once again in those days. Now that their children are teens, it's uh, it's interesting to observe how each of them are Growing up and maturing, Uh, we were there long enough to observe interactions between them and between them and their parents and then with us as well. I'd like to report that that everything was perfect. (laughs) But if I did, I'd be lying to you. Conflicts surfaced. Attitudes were not always godly. Feelings were hurt. But over and above that, there was the sense that we belong to each other because we're family, and so we bear with one another and seek to work out our differences. One thing is for sure, though, the sins of the fathers are visited onto the children. Like father, like son, like mother, like daughter, like grandparent, like grandchild. But uh, what I really wanted to do was... To attribute all the good qualities to my side of the family, and all the bad qualities to the other folks, the other set of grandparents. As that as nice as that might be to do that, I couldn't do it because, in all honesty, I saw some of my own sins reflected in my not only in my children but in my grandchildren, and uh, it caused me some some. Uh, uh, sadness of heart that uh, things are not always perfect. So why would God have created such a flawed system anyway? A system of family. It is true. God has created it. He, and he entrusts babies uh, to their parents for care and keeping, for the learning of life's lessons, even though the teachers are very flawed and the ones taught are often very disobedient. So why did God do it? Perhaps it's because there is a family in heaven already, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A family, a community in heaven. It says in Ephesians 3 and 15, For this cause I bow before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. There's a family in heaven. Therefore, family is not a chance product of social evolution. It's a creation of God to reflect his own being. Family is meant to display God's glory in community, a place where there is meant to be life and love and mutual blessing. But that is also why God gathers the redeemed people into groups like our church here at Oak Ridge. And that's the family that's going to go to heaven, There is a family in heaven, and there's another family that's going to go to heaven, and that's us. It says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, we are God's host, household, which is the church of the living God. So there's going to be a family in heaven forever, a great, big, wonderful, loving family. That's why our mission statement is being the church and becoming family. It's not surprising, then, that this Gospel of Mark should have a large section devoted to family matters. And uh, that's what we're going to look at today. Pastor Josiah has already taken us through much of it. It begins in Mark 9 and 14, and where there's a father, and he brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus to have that demon cast out. And uh, so we have a concerned father. And we have a needy child. And the father brings his child to Jesus. That's the first story in the family matters section. And then, Jesus puts a child in the midst and he says to his disciples and those listening, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Now, He's primarily talking to parents because they are the ones who primarily receive children. And what he's saying is this. If you want to please me and your family, treat your children as if you were bringing up Jesus. That's what he's saying. And you might reply, but they don't act like Jesus. But nonetheless, you see, even in this flawed system, this is the principle that God has given us. See, Receive children as if you were rearing and bringing up the Christ child. Treat them graciously. Treat them fairly. Treat them lovingly. And Jesus goes on to warn them, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone tied around his neck He had been cast into Lake Ontario. Let's bring it home. This is the anger that Jesus shows when, as parents, we do not care to receive our child in the way God would have us receive our children, and we stumble them, we cause them to sin, we cause them to get into evil habits by our badness. The Lord's upset with that. This is followed by a treatise on the sanctity of marriage. Now, I'm not going to get into this this morning, but actually this whole issue on family matters is an extended chiasm, which is a kind of a literary construction that some folks at Oak Ridge have heard of before. It begins with children, and then you get into marriage, and then afterwards you're going to see it goes back to talking about parents and children again. And this is really at the center of family life. It's not the raising of children that's the center of family life. It's the behavior of, of, of our, our, a man and a woman in married life together. That's what the, the, the foundation of family is. And he's talking about married couples establishing their home with love and respect and kindness for one another. A man treating a woman well, a woman treating a man well, the two of them walking together, and then bearing children. So marriage is the key. Broken marriages tend to break down families. They cause distress, not only for those involved in the divorce or in the, in the separation, but also to the children. Children. Then they were bringing their children to Jesus. This is the next step. And and in chapter 10 and verse 13, they brought their children to Jesus so that he might touch them with a blessing. When the disciples rebuked the parents, Jesus got angry with them and he said, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. We've already heard, do not stumble them and now do not hinder them. Do not act badly towards them, that's stumbling them. And don't stop them from coming to Jesus. And I have to tell you this, the primary, the primary means or the primary directive that is given to families, not only to raise your children, but bring them to Jesus. And if you don't bring them to Jesus, you are hindering them. Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In chapter 10 and verse 24, Jesus calls his own disciples children. See, verse after verse, passage after passage in this section, he's going back to family matters. And he's teaching us principles of family. And because Jesus was their their teacher, he was like a father figure to them, and so he calls them children. And then lastly, When the disciples asked about what would their reward be, what would happen to them for having served the Lord, Jesus blesses them in a wonderful way with this encouragement. He says, no one who has left home or family or children or father or mother or houses or lands for my sake and the gospel will fail to receive a blessing in this life. And in the next life as well. Family matters. Now we come to our text for today where we see this section on family concluded. And it's chapter 10, verse 32 to 52. And in our text for today, there are three sections, three stories which belong together. And uh, they all carry the theme of family, and in particular, they refer to sons. And the first story is about the son of man. The second story is about the sons of Zebedee. And the third story is about the son of Timaeus. So we're going to look at them one by one. And in the first story, it's it's the son who is first, In the second story, it's the sons who wanted to be next. And in the third story, it's the son who was last. So let's look in chapter 10, verse 32 to 34. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed him were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus talking about his impending death, and he refers to himself as the Son of Man. We must note that this is the most common way that Jesus referred to himself. But what does the title, Son of Man, mean? We were singing this morning, Son of God. And that's another title of Jesus. Because he is of divine origin, he is a member of the Trinity. The third, He is the second person in the Godhead. He is God the Son in that holy family in heaven. But what does Son of Man mean? I think it means three things. And the most basic idea is this, that Jesus, when he referred to himself as Son of Man, he, he came from human stock. He was born of Mary. He shares our humanity. He came into this world the way we all come, through a mother bearing her child, except that he had no earthly father. Now, none of us chose to be born. And that's probably, probably why most of us, when we were first born, we squawk and we cry. Why, did, why do I come out into this glaring, cold universe? I was in a warm place before. What are you doing to me? I've watched many children be born. It seems like they're all kind of indignant. We enter the human family not by our wills, but by the will of God and the desire of our parents. So many people, when they're disgruntled with life, they say, I didn't choose to be born. I didn't choose to be in this family. Jesus chose to become one with us. He became a human being, just like you and me. He wanted to be with us as part of the human family. And I'm going to tell you this, something that's wonderful, that bears a sermon in itself. He's going to be with us forever in the human family. He's going to be a human being forever. Let your mind dwell on that one. That's an unfathomable, wonderful truth, that forever he's going to be with us in glory. It says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11, we are of the same family, so he Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. I had some older brothers, and one of them I particularly loved because he loved on me. His name was Fred. And, uh, I was so blessed to have him in my life. He cared for me and the others younger than him. Every summer for some years, he drove us to camp in the upper peninsula of, of, uh, Michigan, some 400 miles away. Then he'd go back to work and then he'd come back again and pick us up 400 miles and drive us back home. That's a, that's an older brother who loved us. And, uh, When he was married, week by week, he brought us to his own house in Windsor, some 10 miles away, so that we could participate in the little boys' club that he had for the kids on the street in South Windsor. And then when the boys' club was finished, tired though he was, he'd get in the car and he'd drive us back home again. Even when he was dating Joy, his dates often included us. And he'd drive us out to Point Peely for a picnic. And there we were playing. And uh, there was very little privacy for Fred and Joy because he always brought his family. He always brought his, his, uh, his uh, uh, brothers and sisters along. Now, that's love. And I'm telling you this. Nobody loves you like your older brother. Nobody loves you like Jesus. We got a father in heaven who loves us dearly. We were singing of the love of God. We've got a we've got an older brother in heaven. He's a man, and he loves you, and he cares for you. The second reason that, why Jesus research, re, would call himself the Son of Man is this: the Son. He's he's the representative man. You know there are some representatives of Canadian. The, the height of Canadian trueness and, and, and greatness. And I think of Terry Fox, a young man who had cancer and he was an athlete. And even though he, he, he'd lost a leg already with the cancer, he decided to run across Canada to, uh, to, uh, help, uh, in the cause of, of, for cancer research and to help people contribute. Got halfway across and he couldn't finished the race, and he died with his cancer. But what a man. You see, he's a true Canadian man. Now, the idea of Son of of Man is this. He is the real deal. He's the stuff that humanity should be. The Son of Man. No finer representative on earth than this Son of Man. And the verse that we read tells us to the extent that he went to show us his love. He went to the cross to pay for our sins. You and me, he suffered, and he bled, and he died for all of us. See, that's a real man, son of man. And the third way, by the way, that a verse in Hebrews chapter 2 we put in here, just to illustrate this point. It says in verse 9 and 10 that by the grace of God... He might taste death for everyone in bringing many sons to glory. Now, if you're thinking it's all about sons, he brings a lot of daughters to glory as well. He's talking about about humanity. And uh, he's bringing us to glory. What a wonderful son of man. And because... The third point in this idea of son of man, and because he is one with us, and because he has distinguished himself as the premier son of man, God has given him the first place. God has given him the highest place, and he's no longer just a son of man. In the book of, of Ezekiel, Jesus or God referred to Ezekiel as a son of man, son of man, son of man. So are all the sons of man. Jesus isn't just a son of man; he's the son of man. He's the highest one. And God has accorded him the highest place in all creation. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He's the highest of the kings of the earth. He's the premier person in humanity. It says in in Daniel chapter 7, wonderful, wonderful picture of Jesus' coming glory. It says, in my vision at night I looked there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His kingdom, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Not just a son of man. He will be the son of man. The highest man in the universe forever. Son of man. Do you honor him as such? Do you honor him as such? See, those that belong to, to God, those that are truly saved, have come to an appreciation of the greatness of this man. And they know he's son of God, but they also know that he's the best man that ever walked this earth, and they choose to follow him. And they're saved because they follow him. Do you have that devotion for the Son of Man? The next story is about the sons of Zebedee, and they were the sons who wanted to be next. They didn't want to be first. They knew who was first. James and John knew who was first. Jesus is first. They just wanted to be next. So we read it in Matthew 10, verse 35 to 45. Let's read it. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First of all, I want to talk about this man Zebedee. He is mentioned no less than four times in the gospel of Mark. Whenever it refers to James and John, it always says the son of Zebedee. Why is he given such honor? I think it's because he was a good dad. He was a really good dad. And he loved the Lord. He wasn't just a fisherman. He was a man who loved God. And he, he, he saturated the minds of his boys with the word of God. His mother was a wonderful, their mother was a wonderful mother as well, and Matthew, she's the one who brings James and John to Jesus. But in Mark, he's highlighting the father, and he says, yes, you are recorded in holy writ because you did a good job raising your boys. And I just want to enforce this upon you today. If if you're a grandfather, if you're a father, if you hope to be a father, you see, do a good job for Jesus, and the Lord will bless you, and the Lord will bless your children. James and John were blessed by a godly father. He was a godly man who encouraged his boys to be godly as well. And and uh, these two brothers, James and John, they came to Jesus with a request. Let, us, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Now, what do you think of that on the surface? Perhaps you're thinking, these guys are way out of line, thinking too much of themselves. They, they want to sit with Jesus on his throne. I mean, shouldn't Christians be more humble than that? This is arrogance, and Jesus should put them in their place. But you know the truth of it is, not a word of scolding. Jesus does not scold the disciples for this question that they put to him, this desire that they have. You see, that's because of this. It is proper and right as children of God to seek for honor in the kingdom of God. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to aim high in the kingdom. He wants us to make it our goals to excel in the kingdom. So Jesus does not scold them. Instead, he tells them how they might qualify for such honor. Say, so here's how to do it, guys. If you want that high an honor in the kingdom, this is how to do it. He didn't say you don't know what you're asking, but he said this is how to do it. Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized, baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they answered, we can. And he goes on and he says, then you will drink the cup. You will be baptized with the baptism. And by the way, those are two metaphors for suffering and serving. The cup, the baptism, that's the suffering part of serving Jesus. And then he said, but to sit at my right hand, it is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. In other words, he's saying, men, you may not get these places of the highest honor, but the way to qualify is to serve the Lord and take the low place in serving others and even be willing to suffer for it. That is the cup. That's the baptism. Now, the other disciples didn't see it all this way, and they were angry at James and John for asking for such favor because they thought, well, if they get the favor, maybe we won't get it. And there was this contention in the family. It's called sibling rivalry. But then Jesus corrects them all. He corrects them and he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. A lot of people take advantage of their power, their high place, to lord it over other people and put other people down and treat them less than well. It's the the misuse of power, which is so prevalent in the world, and a temptation even for believers. But then he gives this crucial teaching, which is at the center of all true discipleship. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Notice again, whoever wants to be great. It is not wrong to want to be great in the kingdom. Don't think it is. Don't think it's it's a lack of humility. No, God says go after it. Jesus says go after being great in the kingdom. Do your best to achieve the highest honors in the kingdom. It is the goal of every saint to seek to make such use of their life that God is glorified thereby and they are blessed. Can't emphasize that enough because Jesus is emphasizing it. The only problem is the way up there is the way down. You've got to be a servant of all and you've got to be a slave of all. I'm thinking of Hilda Warsfold, a lady who I had the pleasure of knowing at Loki Hospital many years ago when we served there as, a, as a, in the medical community at that mission hospital. Hilda was a fine English lady. She had bearing. She had upbringing. She was a very intelligent lady. And she carried herself very well. But the first time I saw Hilda, uh, uh, Hilda working, she was at the leprosy colony and she was on her hands and knees with a, with a basin in front of her and a leprosy patient in front of her and she was washing the feet of the lepers. She was pulling off their old bandages, she was pulling away the maggots, she was washing away the filth from their, their open sores, and she was bathing their feet. I know when I get to heaven, I'm going to look up and see Hilda. Because she got low to serve the Lord. If you want the highest place in the kingdom, You get low and you serve. And a prayer such as this might be appropriate. It says, I, Lord, I want to sit next to you in your glory. And yes, I am prepared to suffer for it, to be humble and take the low place for it, to be slave of all and servant of all, just like My Lord Jesus. Lastly, we come to the son of Timaeus, and this was the son who was last. The name Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. That's why we know the name of his father, because Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. Let's read chapter 10, 46 to 52. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, another son being referred to there. It's Jesus again, son of David. That's the kingly line. He's referring to the man of royal lineage, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing the cloak aside, he jumped up to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This was the son who was last. Bartimaeus. His father's Timaeus. Where is Timaeus? Where's his father? Where's his family? The man's blind. He's crippled. He can't, he's crippled in his sight. He can't function very well. And he has been reduced in society to the low place, the last place in society, that of begging along the roadside. We don't know what, is, what happened to his family. Maybe his family's all dead and he's the last one standing. Maybe his family just didn't care anymore. Maybe he had some grievance with his family and refused their care. We don't know. It's just, we just know this, you see. He was reduced to being the last in society and he didn't have a family. He's just a beggar. So a man in a weakened and debilitated state without a family and he's a beggar. But he learns this through hearing that Jesus is coming his way. And he has the faith. He hears that Jesus has done miracles. He has, he hears that Jesus is the son of David. And perhaps he's the long-awaited Messiah. I want to get to Jesus, and I want to call out to him for mercy. So he positioned himself... At that right place in the roadside. And as the crowd swept by, he realized he would not be noticed unless he cried out. So cry he did. And he called out for mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd kept going and they, some tried to shush him. And so he cried out the more. Have mercy on me. Finally, Jesus stopped. And he said to him, call him. He said to them, call him. So the crowd, once anxious to silence him, now turn to him and say, cheer up, on your feet. He is calling for you. Throws his cloak aside, jumps to his feet, comes to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asks. By the way, I think Jesus knew a lot about what was going to happen along the way. I think think Jesus knew that he was going to meet Bartimaeus there. And I think Jesus was just as excited by this encounter as Bartimaeus was. He was waiting to meet this man. And so at the meeting, I, I, I could just imagine the welling up of joy in Bartimaeus, but there was a similar welling up of joy in Jesus' heart. Finally, I'm going to talk to my, my beloved, my beloved child, Bartimaeus. And the story is there. He gets healed. And Jesus says, you can go your way. Anywhere you want to go now, you have sight, you can go. And Jesus seeks to dismiss him, but Bartimaeus would have none of it. And Bartimaeus chooses to follow Jesus along the road. So Bartimaeus actually becomes last in two other ways now, two wonderful ways he becomes last. He is the last recorded miraculous healing of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. He's the last one healed. And he's the last one to follow Jesus along the road, the last one, the last one. One day, I don't know what it is, there will be the last one who comes into the family of God, the last one who is healed in their souls. Because, you see, the Bible says the one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and, and it, today is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. Because tomorrow is, is not sure. Now is the acceptable time. You see, Bartimaeus was probably thinking in his mind, if I don't call on Jesus now, I'm finished. Um, it's over. He's going to pass me by. And that's why he called so so fervently for the Lord. Now, do you know where I'm going on this? If you haven't called on the Lord, you may get passed by. You may get passed by. This might be your last time. Jesus is here, and he is passing right your way. And people are saying to you, Get up, get up, cheer up. He's calling you. The question is whether you're going to call on him. Because if you don't, this might be your last time. This might be your last time. This is how to get into the family of God. It's to call on the name of the Lord Jesus and you're you're saved. This is how to get into the family. Now, if you never do that, I say this sadly. You will never, never be in the family of God. Never, never, never. Jesus is the door, and you call on him, and you're saved. So what do we learn from today's lesson? Let's summarize. God is pro-family. Uh, he's pro-family. He made families to glorify his name, and he wants us to love our families. And, and the church is a great big family. It's going to be the family in heaven. Number two, the most important son in the family is Jesus. Oh, to know that older brother. That's the, the, he's, the, he's the important one. He's the great lover of our souls. He's, he's the one who makes it all happen. He's the son of man. You need to honor him as such. And then number three, it's good to seek to be next to Jesus in the kingdom. It's good to seek to be next to Jesus. It's good to... To be humble and to serve and to, and to be a slave of all so that we might be honored with our Lord and for our Lord in the, in the kingdom. And lastly, the way into God's family is by calling out to Jesus. Just call out in time. Be like Bartimaeus. Recognize your need and call out to the Lord. Let's pray.